Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. It is I, CJ, your humble hazardous history helmsman, back with another admittedly somewhat small but hopefully interesting and educational dose of dangerous history and this episode is going to primarily consist of a talk I gave a few months ago I guess now gee whiz I guess it was back uh, late January and I've been sitting on this audio all this time for over two months I've just been sidetracked by so many other things going on but I finally got around to editing it cleaning it up making it into an audio podcast episode and obviously recording this intro and then the outro that you'll hear at the end. So this was at the Tom Woods School of Life event, and I am a member of the Tom Woods School of Life, and I highly recommend you check it out. There will, of course, be a link in the show notes, and I I admit that I'm not taking full advantage of all the different features and content and so forth that are available, but even so, even with me only having the time and attention to consume so much of the content and material that is in the School of Life. Nonetheless, it has helped me quite a bit. So, this event was in Orlando in, I believe it was late January of 2023, and the topic I was speaking about was techniques to try to unpropagandize the, or depropagandize perhaps, the highly blue-pilled, highly propagandized person. And in particular... I'm talking about people in real life, probably in most cases that you know at least somewhat. But before I turn it over to my talk, I just want to share a few personal updates. So my battles against depression and alcohol addiction continue. The good news is that I'm still alcohol-free as I'm recording this intro. I have 51 days, no alcohol under my belt at this point. So... I'm still on the wagon, and, you know, the battle against severe depression continues, but I feel like I'm making progress, and certainly at least not going backwards currently. Unfortunately, I was yet again not able to run the Seven Mile Bridge run down in the Keys. I, again, bought a spot in the race. And, you know, those of you who've been following me for a while may recall that I was intending to do this race last April. It's over the Seven Mile Bridge down in the lower Florida Keys, which connects, um, I believe the two islands that it technically connects are Big Pine Key and Marathon. And this is a very famous, iconic bridge, and um, it's been featured in several movies, including True Lies. There's the sort of chase scene toward the end on a giant bridge over the water that was filmed on the Seven Mile Bridge. So it's a really cool, iconic run uh, for Florida people especially. And I was intending to do it in 2022, but then a dog bit me and I had to get rabies shots and rack up thousands of dollars of medical bills. So I ended up aborting that time 
And, you know, you don't get a refund on your race fee, but I was able to cancel in time to at least get my money back on my lodging. Uh, this year, nothing as dramatic as a dog bite, but instead a whole bunch of little things added up in the form of multiple injuries over the past few months, none of which was giant and severe, but each of which, you know, would cause me to miss four or five days of training at a time or whatever like that. And, you know, little things like a pulled calf and uh, some knee issues and various things, each of which, you know, with some rest, ice, compression, and elevation got better, you know, within a week or less. But collectively, they knocked enough off of my training schedule over the course of February and March that as of the last week of March, which was the week leading up to the race, I was unable to run more than three miles any of the days I tried to run on the week leading up to the race. And so I had to make the very heartbreaking and depressing decision to not run the race, because if I can barely run three miles, there's no way in hell that I'm going to make it seven. And, you know, you might say, well, it doesn't really matter. You can still stop and walk. Well, A, I don't want to do that. I want to run this thing for real. And B, even if I was okay with that, the seven mile bridge run has a pickup uh, van that basically they can only close the bridge for a certain amount of time that morning. And as a result, if you're not, you know, running at a pace to finish in a certain amount of time, and I forget off the top of my head how long that was, but if you're not running at a pace to finish uh, within the time window, you get picked up by a van and, you know, driven to the end. And I really didn't want to run the race if I wasn't certain that I could finish it in enough time to not get picked up. So unfortunately, I had to make what to me was a very difficult and heartbreaking and somewhat depressing decision to once again abstain from running in the seven mile bridge run. And this time, because I made the decision less than even a week before, you know, we were going to go and check in, we actually were staying uh, on a little houseboat that I found on Airbnb uh, down on Big Pine Key. But because I made the decision that I wasn't going to run in the race less than a week before, you know, check-in would have been, if I did cancel, I would have gotten almost nothing back. I would have gotten maybe like 10% of my lodging costs back. So as a result, I figured, well, since we already paid for the lodging and that's the biggest expense, uh, my wife and I went down and stayed on Big Pine Key um, for that weekend anyway and had a little mini vacation, which both of us very much needed. We've been dealing with a lot lately, some of which I've spoken about publicly and some of which I have not. It's been a very stressful last few months, to put it mildly. But, you know, since we had already paid for the lodging months ago and couldn't get a refund on it, basically we decided, oh, what the hell, we could use a little bit of R&R, &R and, you know, the main thing would be just paying for gas uh, to get down there and back, and, you know, paying for some meals and whatever like that. But we tried to keep it on the cheap as much as we could. We didn't eat out a whole ton down there. But we did have a good R&R &R little vacation. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is that, and this is another thing that's been stressing me and bumming me out over the past few weeks, if not longer, is that I have started to look for and apply for various jobs. Because unfortunately, while my DHP income has grown since I resigned from my teaching job, unfortunately, it has not grown sufficiently enough to where we're okay uh, financially, my household, without me doing some outside work. So I am looking for and applying for jobs, unfortunately, uh, which is kind of depressing. And, you know, it's one of those things I'm grappling with 
uh, how much I should kick myself because I know for sure that if I hadn't been grappling with as much depression and alcohol problems over the past, you know, seven months or whatever, I know I would have been more productive. I know that the time that I spent on podcast related stuff, which was considerable, would have been more efficient and productive if I hadn't been grappling with being depressed and hungover a lot of the time. Now, what is an unknown variable is had I been somewhat more productive, had I been, you know, not on the booze and had I been less depressed over that time span, I know I would have gotten more done, whether it would have that that alone would have been sufficient to up my income to the point where I wouldn't be looking for work right now. Honestly, I have no idea. And I'm kind of struggling with, you know, not kicking myself too much over that because what's done is done and I'm on the straight and narrow, you know, right path now. But yeah, it's tough. And so basically, I'll just say if you're not already some sort of contributor to my work and you would like to reduce my need for non-DHP supplemental work um, to fill in my income, please consider stepping up to support my work on some level. You can do a one-time contribution via Indiegogo to get rewards and perks there. You can sign up for a monthly contribution via Patreon or Subscribestar, and that'll get you access to various types of perks and bonuses depending on your level of support. Or if you just want to send in sort of like a tip jar, just send in uh, a few bucks or maybe even more than a few, you can do so via my PayPal account or via Bitcoin. And if enough people chip in enough, maybe I'll only have to look for some part-time work for now rather than full-time work to make ends meet. And, you know, maybe if enough people chip in enough, I will, I'll be able to just kind of like put uh, my job hunt on suspension and just continue to focus on the DHP. So we'll see. Anyway, um, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to myself so that you can hear my talk from the Tom Woods School of Life event on depropagandizing. And um, I'll just mention, I did have a little snafu with this talk. I did something with my notes for this talk that I usually don't do. And that is, I wrote my notes on index cards. Now, I hate PowerPoint and I, you know, all that sort of stuff I hate and I hate uh, having notes on my phone. So usually what I do with my notes when I go to give a talk is I have them on just like a piece of paper. You know, I've got my bullet points kind of outline thing, whatever. And for whatever reason, I'm, not, I'm still not even sure why I decided to do this with this one. I didn't really need to, but I decided to jot my notes down on index cards this time, which I've only done a few times in the past. And unfortunately, as I, um, trying to remember exactly how it went down, but basically as I was walking up to the podium and setting my stuff down, um, somehow or other, my little stack of index cards fell on the ground and scrambled up and got so, you know, mixed and out of order and whatever that I made uh, a split executive, a split second executive decision to just forget about using the index cards because they were so mixed up. And basically, I did the talk as best I could off of memory, off the cuff, not really looking at notes. And I think overall it came out okay. Maybe a lot of you wouldn't have even been able to guess that based on how it sounds. I don't know. But that's how it went, which, you know, I think I still did pretty good considering I was basically doing it off the top of my head on uh, memory. But it does mean, you know, I, I honestly, at this point, I don't remember what they were, but there were a few 
points for sure that I forgot to mention that I intended to. But anyway, here's me from back in January 2023 talking about depropagandizing techniques. Okay, so I can tell you that uh, Friday night conviviality seems a lot less convivial from the perspective of having to give a talk on Saturday morning. <laughs> so I don't know what, uh, somehow I got the second shortest straw, I guess, but uh, oh well. All right, so um, I've been studying propaganda uh, particularly modern propaganda, which in my mind really starts with World War I, for almost 20 years, the, the history and kind of the theory and methodology. But only in the last six months have I started to uh, seriously look into potential ways to try and counter it. Because a lot of times that's sort of limited to like, well, we'll just make our propaganda, you know? But what if your goal is not to re-brainwash someone into something else? What if your goal is to simply, you know, unpropagandize them and, you know, not necessarily try and force them into being a clone of you or to join your cult instead, um, but, you know, to really think for themselves? So the main thing I've been looking at is um, the literature on, like, cult exit and cult deprogramming, right? Uh, Because I thought, well, you know, a lot of the things that propaganda uses to manipulate you are very similar to the methods that cults use to indoctrinate and control their members. So, obviously, it's in a more extreme form, right? But a lot of the basic methods are the same. Like, for example, milieu control, information control, things like this, instilling you with uh, a sense of guilt and shame if you doubt certain beliefs. And in sort of deep psychological terms, um, also, there's a, something in psychology called attachment theory. And a very interesting thing I came across in looking at the cult exiting literature is the notion that one of the things that cult leaders will do is they will create a situation through trauma of what's called um, either dissociated or disorganized attachment. And so the equivalent of that is if you have, let's say, an abusive parent who simultaneously is abusive but also is nice a lot of the time, right, because nobody's abusive all the time, but is, like, really nice when they're not being abusive. And so it creates a situation in which you're extremely confused because the source of like your fear and, and trauma and all that is the same as the source that you're looking to for comfort. And one of the effects that this has psychologically is it splits kind of the, the thinking cognitive part of your brain from the emotional part of your brain. So it splits that apart. And so, you know, you're, you're being pumped full of fear and yet the same person or institution that is pumping you full of fear, you're being conditioned to turn to 
for comfort and protection. And if this is starting to sound like the relationship a lot of people have with, oh, I don't know, the establishment corporate press or certain politicians, then you're starting to get it. So how many of you have seen the movie They Live? That's a little bit less than I thought. You guys have some uh, cultural education to catch up on. Um, One of my favorite movies by one of my favorite directors, John Carpenter, yes, he made a few bad movies, but when he's good, he's really good. So in They Live, there is a famous fight scene. So the protagonist, whose name is never spoken in the movie, but who's listed in the credits, his name is Nada, played by the wrestler Rowdy Rowdy Piper. He basically, short version, sorry to ruin it for those of you who haven't seen it, but it's a you know 35-year-old movie, so too bad. Short version, he happens to discover sunglasses that when you put them on, you see the world for what it really is. And plot spoiler, it turns out the world is run by parasitic, alien-looking creatures, right? Now, his friend, played by the great Keith David, who uh, the character's name, I believe, in the movie is Frank. He actually does have a name. He comes to give Nada his paycheck from a day laborer job, and Nada decides he, he wants to get Frank to see the world for what it is too, right? So he'll have somebody, you know, in on it with him. But Frank doesn't want to see it, and Nada's insistent. And it turns into one of the most notorious, ridiculously long and drawn-out fight scenes in cinema history. It lasts for about six minutes, and it's brutal, and it goes back and forth, and one guy's winning, then the other guy's winning. There's, you know, they're hitting each other in the groin. Just brutal, right? And then finally, Nada forces the sunglasses onto Frank, and Frank sees the world as it is, and, you know, ends up teaming up with him. But the point is, they both beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> and is that really the way you want to go? And how sure are you that if you do that metaphorically, the person is still going to want to be your friend and work with you and team up with you after that experience? How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? Quite a bit more. Those are probably, they live in The Matrix, the two best-known films for metaphorically depicting waking up to the truth that most people don't see. But the scene in which Neo takes the red pill, right? The movie is such a metaphor for it that that's, you know, become a completely overused cliche at this point. But remember the scene where Morpheus offers Neo the red pill. How different is that, right? Morpheus is very relaxed. He's not pushy about it at all. In fact, he almost sort of tries to talk Neo out of it. You know, like even at the last minute, he's like, Wait a minute. Understand, all I'm offering you is the truth. He's like almost trying to talk him out of it. And Neo takes the red pill. So, my point is this. Would you rather be Morpheus? Or would you rather be Nada? When you're trying to wake somebody up. Morpheus is relaxed and conversational. He's not pushing He's certainly not violent or making any threats. 
And also, he's not trying to take away Neo's agency. He is putting the ball in Neo's court. And as I was reading through various takes on, you know, helping people to get out of cults and other um, destructive belief systems and whatever, I realized that those two movies are a great just, you know, juxtaposition. Because many of you have probably heard of cult deprogramming. It's kind of notorious. Cult deprogramming is brutal. I mean, it, it oftentimes involves breaking the law. Certainly, it involves doing at least some things that are morally kind of questionable. Uh, it's coercive. It basically involves, you know, kidnapping someone and, you know, holding them against their will. And, you know, it's almost like clockwork orange type stuff in some cases. And, you know, aside from the moral problems and potential legal problems, then there's also, it's risky. It very well might not work. Whereas, um, counterintuitive as it may seem, a, a softer, gentler, more conversational, indirect sort of a, an approach that maybe takes a lot longer is actually more likely um, to result in success. So, what are some, some tips that I've gleaned? And, and some of these I've used successfully, some of them I haven't. I've um, made all sorts of mistakes in talking with both uh, students for the 16 years I was teaching and, um, you know, friends and family and whatever, trying to, trying to convince them uh, out of a bad belief. What are some things to keep in mind and, um, you know, strategies, approaches, and whatever? The problem is so much of it is counter to our natural instinct. Our natural instinct when we're talking to someone with a destructive belief that we believe not to be true, our natural instinct is things like being aggressive, trying to push our message on them, trying to just barrage someone with facts and data. That doesn't work 99% of the time. Instead, your number one priority should be to give them as much agency as possible. Give them as much agency as possible. Because the way I've read numerous um, cult exiting experts talk about it is you're just trying to help the real individual human being inside kind of come back to the forefront. What cults will do to someone psychologically is they will suppress their true self and implant a cult identity. Now, the true self is still in there. And it still might pop out every now and then when you're talking to the person. Usually you can see it in, like, changes in tone and body language and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the, the cult personality is dominant, and I sort of think of it the same way with, like, a propagandized personality. And while both cult leaders and high-up, you know, media figures and propagandists, they might all be evil psychopaths. In fact, I'm convinced most of them probably are. But the rank-and-file blue-pilled are mostly not. They mostly have good intentions. They may have faulty beliefs, but they mostly have good, good intentions. And so if you understand that and, and keep that in mind, it's easier to avoid things like being aggressive, getting angry, being emotional. So you want to put the ball in their court as much as possible, and you also want to focus on creating a kind of safe, not in the trigger warning safe space, but, but genuinely safe, friendly environment and atmosphere 
Because when people feel threatened, their defenses go up. You do not want it to feel like an intervention. You do not want it to feel like a debate. Debates are not about convincing the other person. The only utility debates have is for the audience. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about you trying to convince one individual human being uh, to rethink a faulty and or dangerous destructive type of belief. So, believe it or not, people will listen to you more if they like you. I know that sounds crazy. So, you want to be as friendly, non-confrontational, non-threatening as possible, especially at the beginning. Build rapport and trust. It's fine to start off with small talk, especially if it's someone you don't know super well already. You don't want to come right out and start barraging, why do you believe this stupid thing? Don't you, haven't you seen these charts? And don't you know that this percentage of this says that? And, you know, that's not going to work. If they like you and they don't see you as a threat, as someone who's trying to force a conversion on them, they will listen to you. So after some initial rapport building and that sort of thing, if it, especially if it's a person you don't already know well, it's best to start off with questions. And honestly, it's best to ask more questions than it is to make statements. In most instances, you want to only make statements if they ask you a direct question about something. So a great way to start off is to ask someone just to explain their belief on something. And let them go and resist the urge to jump in and try and counter, you know, let them go. The more the other person is talking, the more likely it is that this will actually have an effect on them. So ask them what they believe. And, and by the way, when you're asking these questions, do not do it like you're an attorney cross-examining somebody. Do it in a tone of genuine curiosity. And by the way, keep in mind, even if this person, you know, even if you don't talk them out of their, their faulty belief or whatever, you, you still, you will get benefit. Because you will get a window into why someone who believes something that you think is crazy or wrong believes what they believe. So if you see it as a genuine educational experience, even for you, to get a window into how their brain works and their epistemology, you're more likely to approach it, you know, like, a, like an anthropologist than like an attorney. You know, out of genuine curiosity. And people can tell. People can tell. Once they have explained their belief to you, it helps to say it back to them. And again, not in a snarky way, not in a condescending way. In a genuine, like, try to as accurately restate what they said in your own terms as possible. And even, you know, try and steel man it a little bit when you're giving it back to them. And your goal there is to get them to acknowledge, yes, you have restated my beliefs correctly, and, and approach it from the point of view of, like, I'm just trying to make sure that I get what you're saying. And then start asking open-ended questions about the details of their belief. Questions like how and why. Details of it. You know, if someone says, oh, I, I think everybody should be forced to be vaccinated, just start asking curious details, like, well, how would that be implemented? What exactly would happen to people who, who didn't want to go along with that? Who would enforce this? Like, just, just little, 
you know, kind of basic logistical detail type questions. Because very often, people have not thought through the details of their beliefs at all. And they will hear themselves. And, you know, again, the psychopath politicians and people at the top of the media corporations and whatever, they don't care. They'll they'll say horrible things sometimes by accident and have no self-awareness to realize, like, oh, I just sounded like a complete monster. But a regular person who's not an elite psychopath will actually sometimes hear themselves saying things and realize, like, oh, I sound like a horrible tyrant. They'll also find flaws in the details and implementation of their beliefs. And then another uh, helpful question is to ask them, how might your belief be wrong? Or something along those lines. In other words, you're asking them, under what circumstances or in light of what evidence or criteria might you reconsider the belief? And again, notice you're putting the ball in their court. You're not saying, here's this evidence that you must now submit and concede I'm right about. And very often, just having them run through that exercise and try to come up with something will cause them to rethink, you know, some of their beliefs. By the way, it is extremely rare, it does happen, but it is extremely rare for someone to drastically change their belief on some, you know, deeply held belief that they have in one conversation or in a short amount of time. It typically, with cult members, as with the deeply blue-pilled, it typically is a process and you need to keep that in mind. So don't, you know, have it in your head, oh, I'm going to completely red pill this person in one, you know, fell swoop. Because that's extremely unlikely. And in the process of trying to do that, you're likely to sabotage yourself. Um, there is something in the psychology literature called the backfire effect. The backfire effect has been documented in a whole bunch of experiments. And basically what it is, is you take somebody who has like an objectively incorrect belief about something. And then you confront them with like overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And what happens? Most people double down. You don't want to do that. You don't want to trigger that psychological mechanism. So as you're going through, as you're going through your conversation with the person, again, primarily focus on asking questions. Don't focus on evidence as counterintuitive as that may seem. Focus on asking questions and getting them to try and explain their beliefs in as much detail as possible. Resist the urge to cross-examine or counter the entire time. And in the vein of keeping it, you know, as voluntary as possible, be totally okay if they want to end the conversation. Be nice. However the conversation ends, whether it's them wanting to end it, you wanting to end it, or both, be nice on the way out. Say, hey, no problem. Thanks for talking with me. Hope you have a good day. Because again, you want someone to like you, or else you're unlikely to influence how they think about anything. Another thing to keep in mind is that when somebody is actually having doubts about their beliefs being triggered, it's often not obvious. And so you don't need to be constantly scanning for, like, obvious signals that this person is rethinking something they believed for 20 years. Sometimes when somebody is having genuine doubts, that means that, or sorry, sometimes when somebody is getting emotional, that means they're having genuine doubts. 
And it might appear like they're doubling down on their beliefs and getting you know, more militant, getting more strident. But very often, that's a psychological defense mechanism. What they're doing is you know, they're, they're struggling internally, grappling with their doubts. And at that point, you don't want to twist the knife. At that point, you might actually want to back off and sort of think of it almost as like you planted a little time bomb. And they're going to go home and think about it, and you may never even know. Sometimes, they'll, sometimes someone will tell you if you change their mind about something. A lot of times you don't. You know, I heard from plenty of students over my years of teaching, oh, you know, you changed my mind about how I think about this and that or how I think about American history altogether or whatever like that. You know, it, it was always very gratifying to hear from students on things like that. But, you know, I had to keep reminding myself, because it wasn't, wasn't super often that that would happen, I had to keep reminding myself, you know, for every one student who actually did email me after the semester and say that, there were probably, who knows, you know, dozens um, who had a similar experience, but for whatever reason just didn't, you know, think to talk to me about it or email me about it. Other things to keep in mind, don't try to have these sorts of conversations in front of an audience. That was something I had to learn as a teacher. Whether it's, you know, debating with a student about some ideological or historical question, or whether it's just a student being annoying in class or whatever. Don't deal with it in front of the class. Deal with it after class, in office hours, whatever, one-on-one. It is amazing how much easier it is to deal with someone in a reasonable fashion when they're not in front of an audience and looking to, you know, save face. In general, give the person you're talking to plenty of opportunity to save face. It is not about winning. It is not about winning. You want to, as much as possible, if they admit, like, oh, wow, I I was wrong about that, or, oh, gee, I'm going to have to rethink that, or whatever, don't gloat. Don't do a touchdown dance. Be as generous and empathetic as possible. Hey, you know, I, I used to believe that, and I changed my mind, too. I get it, you know. It's complicated. Be as, be as friendly as possible. Do not try, this should be blatantly obvious, but I, I feel like it needs to be said, at least to some people, maybe not people in this room, but who knows. Pick your battles. Uh, choose carefully who you're trying to convince of what. The setting, I already mentioned, don't, don't try to have these conversations in front of an audience of any type. Don't try to have these sort of conversations in anything other than a face-to-face personal conversation. Don't try to have these conversations over the phone. Do not try to have these conversations over email or social media. I thought everybody knew that, but I still, you know, see people all the time posting on social media, like genuinely trying to persuade somebody of something in that venue. That's just not, not the right place. That's, for, that's where you want to be snarky and, you know, diss people or whatever, because that's what it's for. Um, so, you know, like vent, vent all of that there. Uh, but when you're dealing with someone face-to-face, don't act like how you act on social media, I guess is the way to say it. Trying to remember if I left anything out that I wanted to cover. I think that was about it. I, I sort of pared down a few things so we could get to snack break. But <laughs> in general, you know, just, just to stress... Keep it as voluntary as possible on both, both people's parts, yours and theirs. Approach it as an actual conversation in a non-threatening manner. Do not lose your cool. If they lose their cool, 
it's usually best to try to end the conversation. And remember, if they're losing their cool, it might be a symptom of they're having genuine second thoughts internally. A lot of times it's best to just be like, hey, you know, I can see you're getting a little bit upset. Maybe we can uh, talk about this some other time or something like that or change the subject of the conversation. Be Morpheus. Don't be nada. And if anybody has any, any questions, uh, maybe we have a couple minutes, I don't know. Yeah, well, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter is the place to be mean and, yeah, and win and make fun of people. Because I, I think most of us by now probably understand, like, we're not going to convince the person that we're bashing on Twitter to change their mind. But that is sort of like a debate where there's an audience. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what's going on internally there. Um, in that particular case, I think they were... I think they were saying whatever they needed to say based on the political science of the moment, I think. And I think somebody somewhere, you know, not necessarily every politician or every news person or whatever, but I think somebody somewhere realized the utility of the masks as a, um, you know, sort of, sort of like a cult item. That's, that's what I saw it as. Um, I, I said very early on, and I've said many times since, that um, the, the, the cloth face mask has uh, it, it very quickly became the burqa of progressives or the yarmulke of progressives, you know, or, or the temple garments of progressives, whichever sacred, uh, whatever sacred garment you want it to be. And I think that some people high up in, in the establishment kind of understood this. And that's why, after initially kind of being like, oh, no, masks don't work or whatever, then they're like, you have to mask. In fact, the more masks you wear, the more virtuous you are. If you can get ten masks on your face, you're ten times better than the idiot with one mask down the street. So I I think there was sort of that going there. And, um, you know, I I didn't really dig into, because of time, uh, some of the other things that cults do that are very similar to propaganda. Um, One of them is creating a Manichaean atmosphere of us and them, insiders and outsiders. And I definitely think the masks are an example of that, you know, especially once it became very obvious that, you know, there was no science to back up that a cloth mask prevents you from spreading respiratory diseases. All right, and I hope you uh, enjoyed my talk there and got some stuff to think about. And I just want to mention that, you know, those techniques and strategies I was talking about, those are for one-on-one in-person interactions, number one. And number two, that they are more difficult to have. Those sorts of conversations are more difficult to have the closer you are to a person and the longer you've known them. 
That's just how it is. Not to say that those strategies aren't still, you know, the best things we have to try to get through to somebody who's heavily propagandized, but just understand, you know, that if it's somebody who's like a work friend, who's, you know, maybe a little bit more than an acquaintance, but not a lot more than an acquaintance, counterintuitive as this might seem, if you've never tried these sorts of things, that's going to be an easier one than if it's like, say, your parent, something like that. So keep that in mind. Next thing I want to mention that I actually uh, is one of the things that I intended to mention in the talk but forgot to was a reading list. So I'm just going to rattle off the main list of books that I read and I sort of combined that with my uh, years of experience mostly talking with students when I was teaching to come up with the content of the talk that you've just listened to. So my reading list for this um, is mostly cult exiting literature. So the first one is Robert J. Lifton, Thought Reform in the Psychology of Totalism, a study of brainwashing in China, which is considered like one of the classics of this overall genre of cult deprogramming. The next one is a much more recent book, also by Robert J. Lifton, called Losing Reality. The next book that gave me a lot of useful information and insight is Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, by Alexandra Stein, and um, the next one is Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. And I will say that um, Stein and Hassan both are themselves former cult members, and it seems like a lot of the best experts on the kind of cult exiting literature are people who were cult members themselves, got out of it, and then went into psychology and sort of combined their personal experience with what they learned about psychology to write books like this. I will also mention that all three of the authors that I just mentioned, Lifton, Stein, and Hassan, they all, as far as I can tell, have in recent years suffered from a high degree of Trump derangement syndrome. And so as a result, they often talk about, you know, Trump supporters as a cult and Trump as a cult leader. And it's not that I don't think that there's, you know, at least something to that in regard to some of Trump's supporters, particularly the more extreme ones that still think, you know, Trump is playing 4D chess and believe like the most nutty QAnon type stuff and whatever. Um, those people, I think, are very culty, not the ones who vote for Trump because they think he's the lesser evil or just as a fuck you to the establishment, but the ones that like really think he's, you know, some sort of political messiah who really is going to fix everything still. But I feel like Lifton, Stein, and Hassan very much have an ideological blind spot and don't see that the hardcore anti-Trump sort of blue on people, the ones that still believe in Russiagate even now and all that sort of stuff, that those people are at least as much of cultists as Trump's most extreme followers, if not more so, and that those people are much more dangerous, at least at the moment, because they've got a lot more institutional and other forms of power than the pro-Trump extreme kind of quasi-cultists. So I think when you read relatively recent stuff from these authors, as useful as their you know, body of work might be to understand how cults operate and brainwashing and trying to get people out of cult thinking and so forth. As great and useful as that work is, you have to keep in mind that when they're talking about recent events, they've got their own ideological axes to grind. 
And then the last book that I read that influenced my thoughts on this, and it's written by um, a couple of people that I don't think have suffered from Trump derangement syndrome recently, although there's still people I don't agree with on everything for sure, is the book How to Have Impossible Conversations by Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay. That was another one that I read in preparing for this talk. So anyway, um, if you want to read more about this kind of stuff, that's where I would point you. And um, just a few more things before I close out. One is um, just a reminder that if you've got some sort of event or group or what have you, and you would like to have me as a speaker to give some kind of talk on any of the sorts of topics that I have or might in the future cover on the DHP, I've got a whole page for that for my website. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then last thing, I do have a recent contribution to the Indiegogo campaign to give a shout out to. So thank you very much for chipping in via Indiegogo to me and my work to gaff rigged 72. And that's the first part of an email address. I'm not, you know, sharing the at part of it to preserve this person's email privacy. And uh, they didn't put any kind of like a real name or whatever. So, yes, thank you very much to GaffRigged72 to chipping into my work via Indiegogo. And thank you very much for listening. I've got a whole bunch of stuff in the works going on behind the scenes right now. I know I haven't been cranking out a lot of episodes lately, but there's been um, a lot going on. And so, yeah, stay tuned for some cool stuff coming up in the relatively near future. Oh, and one more important announcement I need to mention. I will be at the Florida State Libertarian Party Convention on Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. And that's going to be in Kissimmee, Florida. And um, I think the convention is all weekend. Anyway, if you're a Florida listener and can make it, to the Libertarian Party of Florida Convention the weekend of April 22nd. Uh, I'd love to meet you and have you hear me speak. I'm thinking I might give just a very short talk about a Florida mensch I very much admire, and that is the seminal leader Osceola. So that's what I have in mind to talk about. So anyway, check that all out. Lots of links in the show notes for this episode. Talk to you again soon. Take care.